Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. I'm Sarah. I'm Hannah. And we're on a mission to help you become the gardener you want to be. All right, welcome everybody to Bloombox Growing Deeper. We're so happy that you're back with us today for this beautiful fall that we are having here in Nebraska. And for those of you not in Nebraska, sorry about it. You should be here. <laughs> but uh, I hope you are also having a good fall. So today we have a fun episode. Um, we're going to talk all about stem nesting bees. So Sarah, I'll turn it over to you. Okay. I love stem nesting bees. I love to watch them um, and I love looking for them. But sometimes they're kind of a mystery to me how I can manage for their habitat. So we've invited Jenny from the Xerces Society to talk to us a little bit today. She is going to be the expert on the bees and we'll be the experts on the garden and together we'll figure out how we can best garden to create habitat for our stem nesting bees. So Jenny, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a little about Xerces and what you do there. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so I work for the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, and we're um, a nonprofit conservation organization, and we focus on animals without backbones. So that's a huge chunk of the diversity of, on the planet, 95% of animals. Um, and my particular work focuses on pollinators, especially, um, although some of my work also involves other soil invertebrates and um, insects that play a role in biological control. Um, I'm based in Omaha, Nebraska, and a lot of my work is based here in the Great Plains and in the Midwest, but I do do some national work, um, particularly supporting um, roadside managers that are interested in uh, cultivating habitat along roadsides, and another big chunk of my work is supporting partner biologists. Xerces has a number of partner positions with the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And those folks work directly in field offices, working with producers or at the state level, working to help um, NRCS implement great, good quality pollinator habitat on the ground. That is so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. I've always thought about Xerces for pollinator habitat and, and pollinator life cycles, but um, I guess I didn't realize that you work with all invertebrate species, and that's pretty cool. It's a lot, and I do think because it's such a huge chunk of animals, we've really carved out specific spaces where we feel like we can make, make efforts and also um, you know, sometimes it's based on funding. Not all critters um, receive the same level of love and attention than others do. So it can be um, harder to build work around some of those invertebrates. We understand yeah. that. Is yeah. there a lot of funding out there for snails? <laughs> that might be a great example. Where... <laughs> 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 Yeah, I just bought this book the other day. It's called um, Goblin Mode. <laughs> and it's about embracing your inner goblin. And <laughs> it's a weird book. But one of the things that they have in there is like how to make a friend of a snail. Because okay. apparently that's very goblin-y. So if I have problems, I'll come to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's certain... Super interesting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, along the line of trying to highlight, I mean, any pollinator right now is is in the spotlight, which is really helpful to the work we do. We use that a lot. Uh, we have deeper goals most of the time to, you know, biodiversity across types of species and plants as well as insects. But the fact that people love pollinators lets us get a lot of work done. And we are fine continuing that. So luckily pollinators in general tend to have the spotlight, but we talk a lot about how sometimes it gets focused on monarchs and honeybees. And while that's great, it still gets the work done. Uh, it does leave out some of our other species. And one that I think can be particularly 
interesting in the garden is stem nesting bees uh, because we provide habitat for honeybees. We know they go back to the hive. Their reproductive life cycle is taken care of by the farmer because they are uh, an agricultural livestock, uh, even if you're doing it as a hobby. And when it comes to, to our native bees, our gardens it have to be that. If they, if we're providing all of this lovely food, um, shelter from pesticides, but we're managing in a way that makes it hard for them to reproduce, we're not really helping. Uh, and and hopefully, you know, that happens within our neighborhood. It might, it, every yard doesn't have to be perfect, but we do need to just think about that part too. So that's something I'm hoping we can figure out together, Jenny, is, is how, what happens in the life of a stem nesting bee. I guess what is a stem nesting bee first? Yeah. Yeah, it's really great to highlight these animals because as charismatic as monarchs are and as honeybees are, I love to talk about these other species because they are so different and they're so cool. Um, and because they're smaller and they live definitely more out of sight, I think they're just less well-known, but once you start looking for them, you can find them and it's really, really fun to watch them. Um, so about 30% of all native bees in North America nest above ground. And most of those nest in stems or some also in um, old beetle borer holes or old cavities, some, some even man-made cavities, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but um, primarily in stems. And these can be hollow stems and some also excavate pithy stems. And these um, tunnel or stem nesting bees make their nests, so in a vertical fashion, typically, if, if they're within a stem, and they use other plant materials within their nest construction also. So different groups of bees have different needs for their plant materials, some will, harvest hairs off of plants. Those are wool carter bees, and you can see them combing the hairs off of plants like um, artemisia, um, uh, prairie. It completely, completely blew my mind what the, the common name for that one is. Prairie sage. There it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, other plants that are really, really hairy with that pubescence, they'll comb it off and they'll bring it back to their nest and that they will create these cells. So um, these divisions and within one division, they'll bring back pollen and nectar and leave a ball of pollen and nectar and then lay an egg. Um, so unlike honeybees, which have these really complex social societies in which the queen is the reproducing individual and there are all sorts of roles within the colony, uh, Stem nesting bees are solitary. And so it's just one female that's finding the nest and then bringing food back and providing for her young. And um, again, when it comes to bees, um, the female is the, the caregiver, the provider. She's the one who's involved in nest construction. The males, I like to joke about it, but it's really true. They just sit around and lounge on flowers, sipping nectar, looking for mates. And that's really their role, um, not to extrapolate that beyond the life of bees, but that is just their role. Um, and so the females that are really hardworking and they, they really do work hard, they have to grab a whole bunch of pollen and nectar to bring back and feed their young. And because they don't meet their, their young, they just lay their eggs and then leave them with resources, they put a lot of work into finding a really safe space to create their nest. So they find the stem that's just the right size and they find the best quality plant materials that they can. And then they find the most pollen that they possibly can and the best nectar. And so, um, so they do create an individual cell using those plant materials and leave those resources, pollen and nectar, and then they lay their egg and then they seal it off. And if they can, they'll create multiple cells within one stem. So they'll just stack them right on top of each other and a really um, interesting feature of bees and also all other animals in the order Hymenoptera is that females actually store up sperm. And so they decide 
when they can um, fertilize eggs and they can lay unfertilized eggs and those will develop into males or they can lay fertilized eggs which, which will develop into females. So it's just a reproductive strategy, um, but it tends to be that they, they invest heavily in the female development. So they will uh, lay female eggs towards the bottom of the stem where it's more well protected. And then towards the top, they'll, they'll uh, and start laying male eggs if they have the time. Males usually require fewer resources. They're smaller in size, so they don't eat as much. And also, if you lose a few to predators, you're not really impacting the population in the same way that you are for females. So um, that's one interesting strategy. Also, males do tend to develop faster and they will emerge and leave the nest earlier than the females. And then they'll, you know, they'll go find other they leave the nest to go find mates that are not related to them. So that is fascinating. It's pretty amazing. Um, there is a, a saying about bees that um, males don't have fathers, they have grandfathers and grandsons, um, which is weird to think about. But that, anyway, yeah, that is weird to think about. Yeah. Hey guys, sorry, I have to break in. I just got a call. The greenhouse structure is here, but nobody is there to get the forklift to get it off. That's okay. So I got to run real quick, but I will be back. You okay. guys keep going. We'll continue and <laughs> you'll come back at the end. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, one question I had for you is we, we were talking about monarchs last week and mm -hmm. they can lay, you know, we have a couple generations a year. With mm -hmm. most of our stem nesting bees, do they do we have more than one generation in a growing season or is it one per year? Yeah, that's a great question and it completely varies with species. So okay. there are some, um, let's take leaf cutter bees, for example. Those are bees that use leaves in their nest construction or petals and they will cut out these beautiful half moon shapes into leaves. Usually they like waxy leaves like wild roses or red buds um, and they'll cut out these half moon pieces and then they'll carry them back to their nest. And what they do is they just create these layers of leaf pieces and crimp them together and then lay their egg and put resources inside those leaf capsules is what they end up looking like. Um, so some leaf cutter bees have just one generation of growing season. So they'll emerge just at the same time every year, let's say like July and just have one generation, whereas um, other species will have two or three. So it just depends on the species. Okay. I, yeah, that's, that's what I was expecting you to say, but I wanted to check because that does um, really make a difference in the way we work in our gardens. Yeah. Before we get, we go too far into the life cycle, which will bring us into the garden work. Do you know, uh, we talk a lot about types of flowers that are better for bees than butterflies. You know, our butterflies need the large kind of pedestal-like flowers they can land on. And our bees are more able to drink from the tubular flowers or, or the things without landing. Are there specific kind of flowers that are better for types of bees? Or is it kind of just, if you're a bee flower, you're a bee flower? Yeah, that's a great question. And really different bees visit all sorts of different flowers. So um, one way to think about it is that butterflies, you know, as you mentioned, need the pedestal flowers. Bees can visit all of those flowers okay. and visit other flowers also. Um, they can visit tubular flowers like pentamen. Mm -hmm. um, and there are bees with shorter tongues and with longer tongues. And so those that have shorter tongues do tend to visit flowers that have smaller nectaries or shorter nectaries. So there's a there's a very teeny tiny group of stem nesting bees, the yellow-faced bees in the genus Hylaeus. They just have two little yellow markings on their, their faces and their bodies are generally very hairless um, because they, they actually don't collect pollen on their bodies. They, they ingest it and carry it in their crop back to their nest. And these bees have really short tongues and so you can see them um, and they're very teeny tiny. So you have to, they can get inside all sorts of flowers, um, but they are more often spotted on flowers like rattlesnake master or any aster, anything in the asteraceae. It's easier to 
to see. Um, but bees like leafcutter bees, they can visit all sorts of flowers. So um, there are no limits, really. That's pretty awesome. I love seeing those teeny tiny bees that they almost look like gnats or something. But uh, if yeah. you watch kind of like how they're flying and, and what they're landing on, you can find little tiny bees in there. Yeah. I know one of my flowers that just seems to attract every size and shape of anything is calamint. Uh, the yeah. calamantha nepeta just it will have on the same day the biggest bumblebee and the tiniest little teeny tiny bee and I love watching trying to find how many species you can find on that yeah mints the mint family has a ton of good species attractive to bees yeah yeah, yeah I really love um Agastache nepetoides. Oh, yes. Yeah. I bet they do. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense to me. <laughs> they love my oregano, but I don't always let it get to the flowering oh. point for them. But uh, when I do, I try to leave a few stems for the bees to find it, and it will attract almost everything, too. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot out there. And even when I think of a flower like penstemon, which are really attractive to bumblebees because they've got that long tubular flower shape. I've seen little teeny tiny carpenter bees go inside there too. So um, I think generally when it comes to insects, if there's a rule, they always find a way to break it. True. Yes. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) What what we think of as rules. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Let's talk also about the, like, leaf you mentioned a few things that leaf cutter bees like. Um, They like the thicker, waxier leaves. And then I know my mother-in-law always has them on her petunias. Okay. There's cut little holes in the petunias and usually it's the petals. Um, And I, some people are very annoyed by that. I find it fascinating. If you have, if you're bothered by leaf cutter bee holes in your plants, just sit and wait to see one sometime. And it is so neat to just see how they cut this perfect little circle and then this tiny little bee flies off with this big piece of plant uh it's so cool I know it's a hole in your flower and that is kind of annoying but it's really cool at the same time it's amazing and I think it's good to keep the perspective that it's not damaging the flower in the long term right and you're helping to build the life of a bee right there and it just from a physiological perspective it's amazing that bee can hold on to this yes huge piece of petal which is quite heavy proportionate to its own body and then carry it back to their nest they're very it is amazing it we partnered with um nebraska public media last year to help promote the my garden of a thousand bees video and when i watched that it was out of england but uh, there was plenty of parallels and just the photography he got of some of those bees was amazing. Uh, and I didn't know you were talking about them harvesting the fuzziness off of leaves. That was something I didn't know about. So yeah. that's pretty cool. We could plant a whole garden around things with fuzzy leaves. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's really fun to watch. They'll just sit there and comb it and then carry it back. Yeah. Um, those plant materials help to create this um, somewhat moisture-protected environment so that those young aren't subject to moisture fluctuations and to protect them also from parasites and pathogens as much as they can. So um, That makes sense. And then I just Googled very quickly what types of bees fall in the stem nesting category. Can you tell me about resin bees? What? What, what is the resin? What are they doing with it? Where do they get it? (laughs) They can collect it from a variety of plants. Um, So even some of the resins off of trees that we might not think of as valuable to bees because they are wind pollinated or um, because they're conifers. Um, And so they'll take that resin back, collect, they'll carry it back to their nest and they use it in the same way as other stem or tunnel nesting bees do to create their um, their cells in between their partitions, and then they'll also cap it off at the end with that resin. And so it, it again just serves that function as providing that protective environment. That is so cool. So I mean, it just reminds me again that we get a lot of questions about 
wanting to plant very specific plants that do something. And the reality is that as long as you're planting lots of different kinds of plants, you're doing something. Because, I mean, yeah, t- trees and a lot of our conifers are, they they don't need an insect to pollinate, but they still give a lot to our yeah. insects. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know we're not really, we're talk- focusing on stem nesting bees, but I was taking down an old red bud that died. <laughs> back a year ago because the, the ongoing drought that we've yeah. had. Um, red buds seem to be really well beloved by beetles that like mm-hmm. to get in there and bore holes. Um, but they just drill in there and then they leave behind this little tunnel and little bees will follow that up, follow in and then fill in that tunnel with their with their nest if they're, yeah. if they're given the chance. So um, it is just amazing you know, their perception of habitat can be very different than ours. It's so <laughs> different. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to live in a former beetle hole, but <laughs> yeah, I would love to watch a bee come out of one. <laughs> right. And I think it's, it's good to remember too, that habitat for them is on a, such a different scale than what we think about. So, you know, if you're working in your yard and you have the opportunity to leave a little bit of stump somewhere, that can be habitat or something. Yeah for so many things yeah that was a great statement because we are gonna kind of move into managing our garden for stem nesting bees and it it gets portrayed often as all or nothing that we talk about leave the leaves for the pollinators we can't cut anything back and we can't rake up any leaves well there's there's times and place for everything um and leaving some stems is definitely better than others than none than leaving no stems so um that was a great yeah I like that we we took down five yew shrubs in our landscape several years ago and most of the stumps had to come out because we had to put new plants in but the biggest one we chose to leave um just to kind of watch it rot and become habitat and also it was easier to leave it because it was the biggest one but Uh, we couldn't leave all of them, but we left something. So yep. that can definitely be a, a strategy. Yeah. And it might not be possible everywhere um, and for everybody, but it's worth, it's worth thinking about. Um, in there's in, in my neighborhood in Omaha, I live in a part where we still have a lot of old growth trees, but some of the really old silver maples are starting to um, be in trouble. And so especially after the Duracho two years ago. Yeah. People have been starting to take them down and been interesting to see after they get cut down at the stump, what kind of moves in. Oftentimes it's some really cool fungi. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I always try to remember that there's the whole world of fungi too. And within fungi, there are all sorts of beetles that feed on fungi. So it's this whole little ecosystem yeah, you can't separate it just because we talk about this one kind of bees today. Uh, you can't separate it from all of the other organisms that live That's in the true. ecosystem. It's fun yeah. to highlight them and, and learn a lot about one at a time, but we don't get to plant a garden just for these bees or just for these butterflies. We have to plant a garden for the whole uh, diverse ecosystem or we really, you can't just pick and choose. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's a lot of schools that wish that we could just have butterfly gardens with no bees in them. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't figured out how to do that yet. (laughs) And and I don't think it'd be a good idea, even if we could. Yeah, you'd be missing out on a lot, too. Um, They're so interesting. So something I've always wondered is when it comes to the stems that these bees use, We have plants that are naturally more hollow stemmed or more pithy, and we have stems that are naturally a little more uh, structural and filled in. Do the bees, I mean, I assume each species has a preference, but will they use all of them or do they stick very much to the more open stems? It's a good question. And um, I think it's a a good place to highlight that we have a lot to learn about these animals. And so... Um, in a lot of ways, what we're doing when we're cutting back stems is giving them access mm-hmm. to the stem itself. 
um, kind of mimicking uh, what large mammals would provide when they're browsing. So yeah. there aren't many bees that can drill through the stem to get to it. So when we cut it, we're, we're giving them access. So that's an important part of the process. And there are definitely some bees that prefer the more hollow stems like you can find in um, evening primrose or sunflower or ironweed or thistle or, or um, penstemon or um, coneflower. And then there are those like small carpenter bees, little, very small, three, three is probably too small, five millimeter, six millimeter little bees that are blue metallic, blue green metallic, and they really like to excavate their stems. So they prefer to, to nest in um, pithy stems like caneberries and raspberries, um, wild rose or sumac. And if you, if you have raspberries in your yard and you cut them back regularly, I'm pretty sure you probably have these carpenter bees, these little tiny carpenter bees. We have, uh, we do. And uh, we cut them back. I cut half the plant back all the way every year and half of it a little bit. And we always have bees nesting in those, those stems. Uh, and I love to see them in there. Yeah. yeah it's probably my most... Uh, the most consistent place to observe them in my yard. All the other plants, there will be something or there won't, but there will always be something in the raspberries. Yes. Yeah. Those little, those carpenter bees, they come back year after year after mm -hmm. year to, to raspberries. And it's in the springtime when my raspberries are shorter, you can see the males kind of flying around the outside of the stem yeah. waiting for females to either come out <laughs> or for another female to return to her nest. What do we <laughs> well, do? We don't have anything to do right now. Yeah, gotta wait. Yeah, gotta find her mate. So, yeah. um, but I think you were you were asking about managing our landscape and thinking about them. And I, when you said, you know, I cut back half my raspberries and I leave the rest, and then I rotate that through. I think rotating. Cutting is really a great strategy because uh, then you have some stems that are longer and really available for stem nesting bees, and then you you might not be able to do that in all parts of your yard. Yeah. Um, but rotating it through, you have space where you do have that habitat still available. And my my reason for doing that was selfish. It was because I wanted the more food that that produces to cut <laughs> them back half this year cut this half back that came out weird to cut one half back and the other half back um that was the management strategy i was taught to get the most um food off your raspberries and what i've kind of learned as i've i've been reading is really the only thing that you can do wrong in the landscape for habitat is to try to make it too clean for the purpose of clean only. If you look at like the strategies we're taught for managing food um, with the raspberries and with trees, the, the selective pruning versus the one big cleanup, uh, that doesn't hurt that system. It fits with the system. But if we look at what we do to landscapes when we try to make them too clean, yeah. I mean, if we try to make them just too orderly and, uh, and clean them the same way we would our living room, then that's where we start to have problems. Yeah. It's really what kind of what I've seen from people. I think that's a great, that's a great example. I mean, natural systems get browsing from yeah. animals all the time. The cutting itself isn't the problem. It's the kind of excessive cleanliness. Yeah. <laughs> And who has time for that anyway? <laughs> I have too many plants to be too excessively clean about all of them. <laughs> you know, my plants are definitely winning. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Battle, they've they've got the upper hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm fine with it that way. I kind of I kind of prefer it. Uh, but that's my style. And and there are places we have public landscapes where the option is not given. It's it's dictated and and there's things that we can do in those landscapes to clean them up to the required level, but um leave not space. Too far. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a that's another really nice point if you have a really manicured landscape. Um 
even when you're cutting back your stems, if you just leave a little bit longer, you know, rather than cutting them to four inches or six inches, maybe leave eight inches or 10. And remember that when your new growth comes in, it's going to hide that old growth, yes. that old stem. So you won't, it won't be around for long. It won't be visible. Um, and you really are providing something important. So I think in some ways, this is probably, you know, the majority of your audience is already seeing that landscape as providing beyond, you know, value beyond its landscape. But we do have to sort of approach all of these manicured landscapes as opportunities for habitat, not just for not just for people, but for everything right. else for other lives. Exactly. And if we want to claim our public landscapes as pollinator habitat as many organizations and cities are wanting to do then you need to we need to follow through on that um, and also provide the habitat so I we're going to link to a handout that Xerxes has um, showing the seasons and how to create habitat for stem nesting bees and the thing I like about this handout is it illustrates what you just said it shows in the illustration the cut stems with next year's growth put on top of them and how you can see that they're still there, but you you don't notice them. And I think that's a great thing to show that, you know, it's it's not going to hide next year's flowers to leave a little stem. And eight inches really isn't that much. Um, most people aren't going to cut back to ground level anyway. You'll, you'll kill your plant. Most people are leaving four inches. And what is eight inches if you've already left four? Yeah. It's not that much more. So... Maybe I was thinking about where we should start with this, and I think everybody starts with spring, but maybe we should start with where we are right now in the year and think yeah. about what the bees are doing at this time of year, which is mid to approaching the end of September. So what is kind of going on in the bees' minds at this point in the year? Yeah, in late summer, so there are probably still some leaf cutter bees out there and maybe some little resin bees um, and maybe some wool carter bees. A couple, there's a couple groups of stem nesters out there right now. And they are, um, if there's stem cuttings available, they are building in those and bringing pollen and nectar back. And um, right now there are so many resources available. It's a good thing. And they'll seal off their nest and probably in probably in a couple of weeks because these bees um, want to take advantage of the resources that are there and they don't overwinter as adults. So they'll, okay. die, they'll die off. Um, <clears throat> the adult, the adult females will die off in the fall. Kind of as our first frosts are happening. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe even sooner Yeah, okay. on the tail end of diversity okay. in a couple of weeks, all the females that you'll see out and about are females that, that overwinter as adults. So okay queen bumblebees or um, some of the, the sweat bees that have slightly, that, that mate in the fall and then overwinter as adults and then next spring start create their nest at that point. But um, these bees, the overwintering takes place within the stem nest. Mm -hmm. And so they're wrapping up their nest or they've already built their nest and it's sitting inside your stem right now. And um, <clears throat> at that point, you know, what you want to think about is leaving it, leaving it throughout the fall if you can, or if you need to cut some back, cut some back, but leave some of them. And for my part, I, I like to do that just to see the birds that come too. Um, yes. It's not, we can't just think bees. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the birds love to land on the seed heads. Like in, yeah. in, my, in my yard, we get goldfinch that land on the echinacea heads and that's, Really lovely to see out my window as I'm working. Um, so those seed heads can stay up through the winter. The flower heads can stay up through the winter. And then in the springtime, or, you know, as long as it takes whenever into the next growing season, you can cut them back. And um, I'm, I'm thinking what you said fits very well with the advice that we gave just a few weeks ago, where as you're really summer blooming plants are fading and and it's really our fall bloomers that are left we start to get stem floppage is what <laughs> i call it and yeah. it's you know the flowers that really there's not a whole lot of seed head left for for pollen or for birds that my penstemons flop hard when they're done flowering and so we talk about how a way to manage the 
the aesthetic of the garden is to take those things that are done blooming and have flopped in say late August, early September, and I only cut them in half. So I'm leaving like a probably a good foot of stems, maybe a little over a foot. And I'm guessing those are the things that we're seeing available to the bees right now for, for nesting in. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. That's great. But I would echo, I definitely leave all my echinacea. I want as many little finches as I can. Yeah. My sunflowers <laughs> are still up because I want all the birds and um, right. I'll leave my goldenrod once it's, it's, in the height of its blooming, but that will stay up all winter. Yeah. Things like that. Seasons. They're beautiful in the wintertime. So yes. they're so gorgeous when they get frost on them. They are. They're they're just so feathery and and perfect for holding the frost and the snow and the birds. Yeah. 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 And then you know, and fast forward to spring, we'll be thinking about that period if we have a an early warm-up in March or in April, we'll be thinking about getting out in the garden and it's okay to start trimming back at that point, but maybe you could rotate through again and just trim a portion of your your older plants and yeah, um, and then you know successively keep trimming them in the next couple of weeks, and that creates those new um, openings for the next generation that will emerge um, and find the find the open stems. So then it just starts all over again. Yeah, I find with holding people back spring is the danger time i think most people have heard the message that we need to leave some stuff in the fall and or there it happens by accident because we get busy but then it is really hard to resist that 70 degree day in late february early march and not be outside doing everything so that's the time i i find excuse me we have to be really on top of our messaging about remember it's too early so i'm thinking all of those things that were cut in the fall we probably need to be extra careful of those because that's where we're most likely to maybe find a bee or is it also the things that we left all the way up to the seed head so all the way up to the seed head um probably not bees um there are other things that are probably living in that though um I, I would assume, I would think it's just safe to assume that during the winter, if it's available, it's sheltering something. Yeah, definitely. There, yep, it's out there. And it's, yeah. that's where um, just thinking beyond bees is really helpful. You know, you're providing habitat for a whole range of critters in your yard. And it's a, it's a system. It's an, an ecological system. It so, is. Yeah. Um, so, yes. Yeah, thinking about the stems that you cut in the fall or cut in the late summer, that's going to be uh, where you have things that have nested already. Um, and <clears throat> the cuttings that you make, that's going to be the future nest site. The future, yeah. So yeah. what? when do they start, when do we start seeing them emerge in the spring? Yeah, it can be pretty early. I think like February, early March is a little soon, but yeah. um, but things like those little tiny carpenter bees that we were talking about earlier, they will start flying in earnest in April when you get, you know, a week or so of really nice sun. Yeah. That's not that early, early, really. I mean, that's not that late. I mean, we talk about gardening season starting on Mother's Day, which I don't find a super great rule of thumb for native plants anyway, Mm -hmm. but April is, is earlier than we think about, I think. Yeah, and I know that um, this might push against some of the the conventional wisdom about disturbing the soil and disturbing leaves. So I want to take that and acknowledge that, especially if you've left leaves um, with the express purpose of thinking about habitat for butterfly, pupa and larva and lady beetles and lacewings and queen bumblebees, and you've put those leaves underneath shrubs, you know, you can definitely keep those and don't keep that as late as you can into the mm-hmm. spring because that's really helpful because we do have those warm-ups and then those frosts and um, they still need places to take up yeah. and get cold. So keeping that, I think, as late as you possibly can is really great. Um, but stem nesting bees, once they have access to their stems, they have protection. So that can give them some protection from frosts. Um, yeah. And a place to shelter 
And um, usually when they're in the process of building their nest, um, they'll shelter at night within the nest. So, so they, they are out early and especially species like mason bees, which are um, one of which is the really well-known, the blue orchard bee. They're, they're dull metallic, they're um, maybe 10 millimeters or so. Um, and many of them are common in man-made shelters, bee, bee boxes. So that's a group that do fly early and they're, they're done flying in Nebraska by the end of May. Usually. Oh, wow. That's very, yeah, that's early. Um, they're, they fly early. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the blooming trees that we have going in April and some of those really blooming, early blooming shrubs and sometimes the spring ephemerals that bloom before mid-May, um, there are things flying. Yeah. Yeah. So what then in the spring we have the overwinter generation emerges and then how long does it take them to start laying their eggs? Do they start right away? Or is, I mean, there's not a ton of things blooming in April other than trees. So do we, do they wait for more food sources? So they'll time their emergence and they have cues that we don't really fully <laughs> understand yet. So usually they'll, they must be tied to day length as well as warmth. Um, but somehow there are some that are, you know, closely tied with a particular um, species of plant that they collect pollen from a particular species. And so they'll time their emergence and they seem to still be able to time their emergence when that flower is blooming. So that's wow, amazing coordination of nature. And especially when one is, sheltering in a dark structure I have no idea how they know when how they their nest. <laughs> yeah and it, um, I mean even without the changing climate Nebraska's never been a very predictable place to guess yeah. the spring weather <laughs> <laughs> that's so, pretty amazing it really is yeah and there there are some bees also that have the ability to actually skip emerging a whole season to you. Wow. I don't know how often this happens in, in stem nesting bees. In fact, I don't think we generally know how often it happens in across all solitary bees, but some can just say, gosh, that seems like it was a really hard year. I'm going to hold off and we'll see what next year's like. So that's pretty crazy. That is, um, yeah. Yeah. So they will time their emergence with resources as much as they can. Or they'll do their best. So yeah, they might wait until, you know, after maples have started, or after maples are done or after, um, but once we get those full on blooming flowering trees, there, there are quite a lot. So crab apples and um, uh, pears and dogwoods yeah. and dry buds, um, those are always usually buzzing with all sorts of, um, especially the mason bees. Um, and small carpenter bees and all sorts of little things. Yeah. Um, okay. Figure out where it was. Oh, with so then the the flowers that we've left standing, the seed heads that we left standing through the winter, and we're getting ready to cut back in the spring. Those are going to become the nesting habitat for these emerging bees. Okay. Uh, yep. So, you know, if we start cutting back, I think the the typical recommendation is late April, early May. Does that kind of stand up with when we have our stem nesting bees ready for nests? Yeah, I think that's fine. I um, I did cut some mine back earlier this year just because I realized that if I, if I waited too long, I was just never going to be able to get it done in the time that I had. Yeah. Um, so I did start a little bit earlier. Notice that that there were things that were coming to them. So um, it was a good reminder to me that, uh, yeah, it's hard to predict. I think I, yeah. just taking small chunks and doing what you can is, I think it's good to remember too, that disturbances happen all the time mm -hmm. in nature and they happen in small scales as well as big scales. So what we're doing in our garden is just, it's a small disturbance. <laughs> It really is. And like I, you said, as long as you're not manicured, too disturbed, not too disturbed, I think we're, we're 
Yeah. And, and like you said, with disturbances, what we're mimicking is large grazing animals and they came, they ate when they wanted to eat. Uh, I have started leaning toward worrying less about when I cut in the spring and more that I don't cut anything back more than like eight to 10 inches. Um, It's just kind of been, because I, in the same way, if I wait too long, then I get busy. Um, It's my job to be in other people's gardens and not my own. So I do sometimes have to get out there a little early or a little late. And I've just started kind of moving toward worrying less about, did I wait until the right time in April? And more about, did I cut it too far? Like, did I leave enough for anybody who wants to use this stem to find a way to use it? And probably the only exception to that is grasses. If you want your clump forming grasses, you have to cut them back pretty hard. Um, But they don't leave my yard. They go to the pile of grasses. (laughs) So uh, whatever hopefully was nesting in there is still nesting in there. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that you highlighted the length because to, to circle back to what we were talking about earlier, where, um, if they can find enough pollen and nectar and other, they can find enough resources, you know, they'll fill the length of whatever stem is available and the longer, the better, because then they have more opportunity to lay females. And so if they just have four inches together, um, they might be able to lay two to three females and then a couple males, but if they've got eight to 10, you know, then they could squeeze in six or eight females and four or five males. So yeah. um, the length really can matter a lot in terms of the proportion. And and even though I joked about <laughs> males, really having too many males and not enough females does limit the overall population because it's the females that are building the nest and collecting yeah. the resources. So they're they're the limiting factor in a lot of ways. Yeah. So that length can really make a difference. But yeah, I I hear that. And um it just it does I think fit into a garden created out of native plants to have a few stems yeah. here and there. It really it just it fits. It doesn't look out of place. It doesn't look weird. It it fits the aesthetic. So Yeah. I agree. Yeah, some of the stems are really can be beautiful. Yeah. Um so in all seasons. All right. I think that was a year in the life of a bee. So I have a question for you now that we've talked through kind of what happens in the garden. If there was one thing, if you could, if you had all these people in a room and you could ask them to change one thing they do about how they manage their garden, what would it be? I think it would be what you've already highlighted. I think it would be keeping the length of stem. And I think it's, um, you know, that eight to 10 inches or pushing it six to eight inches, but um, it feels really foreign to people oftentimes. And um, it feels there's just some resistance to leaving it in the fall and, and then cutting it back and leaving a little bit of it in the spring. Um, it just feels a little bit different to people. So it's been the thing that People say, oh, I can get on board with using native plants and I can get on board with this or that, but I I just don't really want to leave my stems. You know, I want to clean it up. Um, So I think that's the one thing I would just keep in mind is that the whole plant is valuable. Yeah. Yeah, Um, you could taper it off too. You know, leave a couple of stems that are eight feet tall and you could have a couple that are- Yes, right on the edge, the ones that that you're actually walking next to. I brought that one up because it's- it's a plant that gets cut on in my yard because it's between our house and our driveway. And it has to get cut because the snow load will drop it right onto the car. But I we don't cut the whole thing. It's those stems that we know are going to fall on the car that get cut shorter. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the ones by the house. They don't do anything. They stay there happily all winter. Yeah. But, but yeah, I just, I think this was a great... Um, conversation to to remember that there's so much more to our plants than the flowers absolutely yeah yeah 
Yeah, you got fire. Yeah, all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> One other uh, B question I wanted to ask you is what what are your feelings or recommendations when it comes to the human constructed bee houses or the insect hotels? Yeah, this is a really great question, um, especially now there's a proliferation of bee houses on the market. And I think the short answer for that is you should save your money and not, not buy a bee house. Um, I think you could experiment with this is this is fun. You could experiment with cutting different stems in your yard. And mm -hmm. you, for example, you really, really want to cut down your echinacea stems right now. Um, you could cut them down, bundle them up, um, and tie them together. Stick one end in a aluminum can, mm -hmm. and then place that outside next spring as nesting habitat. So that would be like mimicking stems natural stems out on the landscape. And it's essentially like a, purchasing a bee home. Um, there are some practical downsides to purchasing a bee home. Oftentimes the diameter of the entrance holes are too big, not appropriate for a lot of our stem to bees, which are really mostly very medium size or very tiny. Yeah. Um, oftentimes they're sometimes really short too. So they're just three inches or four inches. So that's not a great length for stem nesting bees. Um, sometimes I've seen them so that they don't have, they're open on both sides. <laughs> that is a terrible design mm -hmm. because stem nesting bees select their site so that they have one end that's closed. And that's so critical for them because the solitary females creating their nest, they cannot be in two places at once. So they cannot be guarding two entrances. So yeah. having one entrance is enough um, so they need that protected side on the other side. So um, homes that are designed by people often in aesthetics, you know, on the market are not, not often great. Even those that are designed really well and have been used for commercial bees, because there are um, some solitary bees, the alfalfa leafcutter bee, for one, that's been propagated for um, alfalfa pollination in the West, West of the Rockies. Um, even those that have been really well designed, um, for the average person who's just having these bee homes, there are issues that can sometimes be created by those, namely, um, the density of all those bees in one place is a resource that birds love and other predators love. So birds like woodpeckers will come in and just decimate the, the population. Um, there's also lots of parasites that are find that that density um, really attractive and pathogens too. There's fungi that move in and um, all sorts of other things that can move in and really be bad. And so in some cases, these bee homes can be sinks, population sinks. And so um, I really, we like to encourage people to use natural nesting habitat that we've already been talking about first and foremost, because it's so valuable. Um, but if you're going to use nesting blocks, and in some cases, they can be great for education, even if they're not conservation tools, they can be really huge for people because you can have a little tiny nesting block and people can walk right up to it and look at them because these bees don't pose a health risk. They're not going to sting. They don't really mind if people watch them do their work. And it really is fun to watch a bee come and shove a petal piece or a leaf piece or resin into a hole to create its nest. Yeah. So they can be amazing for education. Um, but if you're going to do that, make sure to keep them small. So make sure you don't have a huge number of entrances in one space um, to reduce the, the density for, and risk for pathogens and parasites. And then also um, scatter them throughout your landscape if you can. So don't have this huge conglomeration of nest spots right in one place. You can stick your little nest bundle over here and your nest bundle over here um, throughout your throughout your space. Yeah. I think everything you told us through this episode about what stem nesting bees want told us that everything about those houses is what they don't want. Uh, I mean, everything we've talked about today being at least eight inches long, I've not seen one of those houses that's that deep. Uh, and 
I love the idea of using the echinacea stems in a tin can because mm-hmm. what I run into so often is people are after these houses for the way to get kids active and or they want to decorate something they just want to decorate something, want to make something. <laughs> you can decorate yeah. so many things <laughs> and put them in your garden yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a bee house <laughs> yeah so. yeah and the stem bundles it's fun because it gives you an opportunity to experiment and then we also mm-hmm. learn a little bit too because going back to earlier in the conversation we're still learning about different plants that provide resources you know presumably probably every stem host most likely, yeah, something. Um, it's just that we haven't documented it yet. So, um, so yeah, I've I've really enjoyed experimenting um, on my own, and I encourage other people to do too. Yeah, it's fun, and you can just get different, you know, different uh, stem sizes. You mentioned Fernonia; that one's a really pretty robust stem. Yeah, it's, um, it's a big one. <laughs> but then, like um, evening primrose, has a really thin, very teeny tiny opening. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, you know, going to get a completely different suite of bees than Renonia. So, yeah. Well, that was just, that was so much information. That's going to be so fun to go through um, and to answer questions on and, and have people listen to. So thank you so yeah, much, Jenny. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's really fun to talk with you. Hannah came back. We have a yes. greenhouse now. <laughs> Did okay, they actually yeah. deliver it? <laughs> did we pull back pull back the curtain a bit? We did. I, okay, yes. I've been gone this whole time. <laughs> um, the greenhouse is here. It's getting delivered. The contractor was supposed to be here. They were not. So that is what it is. But it's being taken care of now. So, Well, yes. we missed you, but we also really want the greenhouse. So that's fine. Yes, we I'm we excited worked. to hear what you guys, t- I'll be able to listen to this episode. <laughs> okay. That's true. <laughs> you follow-up questions or need clarification, let me know. We can <laughs> go back. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think we're going to link a lot of things. Uh, okay. And I think this is just going to be a wonderful episode to come back to and to share in certain education settings. Uh, I really, I think we just, we talked Hannah so much about not just managing our gardens for stem nesting bees but how the choice to manage for them really manages for so many different uh organisms and there's just so much living in our gardens and it's awesome yeah Yeah. it's amazing I was just out looking at my garden yesterday I asked Matthew do you want to go for a walk through the garden (laughs) and look at things and just when you stand because my front garden is covered with snow flurry aster. There's no, it's not flowering yet. Um, but you can hear the crickets, like mm-hmm. just the amount of sounds coming from my yard. And then you walk by other people's yards and there's a lot less and it's all day, all night. You can hear it. it it's so fun. Yeah. Just, just see all the things that your garden can support. Yeah. We do that a couple of times a week as kind of our, we go for an evening walk. Um, our three-year-old has to get walked before bed so that he'll go to sleep. So <laughs> we go for an evening walk. And it's fun as we're three different sized people to be walking through the garden together and to see what we all notice. Um, Silas is a huge fan of any invertebrate that he could possibly find. And bonus points if he can try to put it in his pocket so <laughs> he would often points out the roly-polies and the crickets and those things and uh but also like with us being adults we see things higher up and things up on the trees and that's it's so fun to go through your garden at different times a day at different levels and see what's there so yeah yeah i love the idea of listening um, yeah, I took a recording this morning, just as you were describing Hannah, because it was just fun to hear all the noise. It's, yeah. Yeah. And I think we're at like peak summer noise now, like all that you can hear the cicadas and the crickets and every, you hear everything and I love it. Yeah. 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 Me too. <laughs> and the birds do too. They're like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I bet they do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So Um, do either of you have anything you want to add before we wrap the episode up 
Hannah has no idea what we talked about. So <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited to listen. I think okay. it's just uh, time for what's blooming. Yeah. Do you oh. want to do you want to start us, Hannah? Do you want to go first, Jenny, or do you want me to? Um, it does not matter. Okay, Hannah's pick then. Yeah, I I'll start us off. How about that? Okay, so what's blooming in my yard right now is I just, my goldenrod in my front yard, as well as my liatris are just starting. I have very late liatris. You do? Which one do you have? That's a great question. I don't know. (laughs) Something late. (laughs) Something very late, because it is literally just starting along with my asters, along with my goldenrod, and then of course, as we've been talking about all year, my front yard pumpkin patch is also blooming and producing pumpkins at the same time. It's, it's still going. So um, there's a lot of purple and yellow and orange. It's the fall garden of my dreams. Good. And I'm having a great time. Yeah. I love that combination of liatris and goldenrod. You don't get that very often. It looks very unique. Um, and I'm enjoying it and I can't wait for the snow flurry aster to bloom then so it'll be white and purple and yellow and orange and just like I can't imagine anything more pumpkin fall Halloween-y <laughs> than all of that so yeah what is blooming in your yard Jenny? I also have latrus blooming and goldenrod and Bernonia, the ironweed, which is this deep purple, and I love it. And one thing I love about all the asters in bloom right now is that there are a couple specialist bees. They're ground nesting bees, but they um, really only collect pollen from different flowers in the asteraceae. And they are so busy this time of year, and they're so fun to watch collect pollen. And then I also have one annual, it's um, Golden Crown Beard, also known oh. as Cowpen Daisy. It's um, verbicina and soloides, and it usually is found western Nebraska where it's a little bit more dry um, but I've been trying it in my vegetable garden which sounds strange but um, it really likes the disturbance and this year was great because we had so little rain it sort of acted like this protective <laughs> thing all the vegetables grew underneath and did really well and then kind of grew over it so um, that was a happy accident. That sounds wonderful. I love putting flowers in my vegetable garden. Yeah. Because sometimes out. vegetables are kind of ugly. <laughs> and I just would like yes. some color. <laughs> or they need, they need some structure to yeah. keep them going. So I don't know. I'm going to experiment a little bit more with that, I think, in the future. That worked out. It was a good surprise. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds excellent. What's in your garden, Sarah? <laughs> well, I am having really good success with my goldenrod experiment. So I have one of the really early blooming goldenrods, which is sweet goldenrod. And it is like the plant I left alone is fading now. Like it's done. It's been blooming for a month. But we talk a lot about managing flopping plants by cutting them in half in June. And so I I tried it. I left two plants alone and I cut one plant in half. And the plant that I cut in half is in full bright bloom while the other plant is fading so I'm going to call that experiment a success on many grounds Uh, one because it's blooming very short and it's not flopping at all two because now there's empty stems right inside that goldenrod so I think that's a success and um, it delayed it a little because I didn't realize this was an early blooming goldenrod when I planted it and so I didn't have a lot of fall color in my garden and I was kind of bummed about that. So without having to dig anything up, I lengthened the bloom time. That but is a win. A, yeah, I think that's a win. And then I have this combination of primrose and snow in summer, which are both like very silver gray plants and very low. And then I've got this curly, a twisty, some kind of allium that Bob had like three years ago and we haven't had since. And it's only like six inches tall on the flower and like maybe three on the the leaves. And it just Mm -hmm. opened and it's pink. So this pink allium that's really short blooming in all these short silvery plants. It's, I don't, it's just pretty. (laughs) It's just very pretty. I have some of that in my my hell strip. I feel like it's like, 
it's not it's a prairie onion variety I feel something like. like that the problem yeah. is that a lot of my plants I get because they ended the season unlabeled and unidentified mm-hmm. and we couldn't sell them so now they're in my yard well you know I do the opposite of you and I do put my um labels in with my oh. plants so it might still be it, there it I might. Can look. you'll have to check but I just that I thought that was so cool because I forgot about them all my other alliums have bloomed mm-hmm. and then these just popped up their little pink flowers right in the silvery foliage and it's really pretty yeah it's super pretty they also have them over here on in the uh, arboretum gardens oh so yes. I think they're labeled there okay I'll we'll have go to walk over and look yes yeah. but this has been a very fun episode thank you Jenny for joining us yeah thank you so much for having me it was really yeah. fun for me i yeah, appreciate the opportunity to talk about these little anytime, guys. ladies, <laughs> ladies. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Like Sarah said, thank you for being here, and thank you to everyone for listening. Of course, don't forget to send us your questions if you have any. It's the end of it's. We're getting to the end of gardening season, but you probably still have some questions about what to plant, when, where, why, how, all the things. <laughs> Ask us it all. Uh, please rate and review us and share us with a friend. Remember, I gave you an assignment last time to share us with three friends. So you can have an extension if needed. We'll be flexible. Do it, or you can do it again. Pretty share sure it. there's no grade. So there, uh, there just is invite. a grade. Oh, there is. It's pass fail. Oh, good. it's pass fail. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you either, either do it or you don't, I guess. But we want everyone to pass. Um, all right. Well, yeah. Thank you for listening. Bloombox and Bloombox Growing Deeper are both programs of the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum.